to Upstream with Jim and John, father and son conversations about discipleship and culture in the Pacific Northwest. I'm John. And I'm Jim. And welcome to episode 103, where today we're going to talk about really one of the great struggles of human beings, and that is our sense of identity, our sense of self. Mm -hmm. Where does it come from? How do we make it healthy? And how do we land on? So we're going to give you some places people frequently look, and we're going to give you a model at the end. It's going to help you figure this out. I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. I'm really excited about this one. I think it's, yeah, this one could just be titled, Who Am I? Who am I <laughs> and who are you? There you go, yeah. That's from uh, Alice Wonderland. The, the oh, owl. the Epsilon, yeah. yeah. Not the owl, he's a, a caterpillar. Oh. Oh, is a caterpillar that says that? Mm-hmm. Who are you? You'd think it'd be an owl now that you mentioned it. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. Yeah. Anyway, before that, it's story time, John, or joke time. What you got for us today? Uh, I've got a story. I had two that I was gonna. I was gonna tell a different one, and then I realized, you know what? This is an identity episode. I'll tell an identity story. And uh, a little bit ago, I talked about a little like a uh, space camp that that I went to as part of my school. And uh, we also did. I think earlier we did one called Young Ameritown. Oh yeah, you were gonna talk about that. Yeah, and um, I forget what year this was, um, but I was pretty little, sometime in middle school. And yeah, I was gonna say I was gonna say seventh grade, but it might have been sixth, maybe seventh. Yeah, it's I honestly I don't even know how I get through the day sometimes. This memory is not quite what it used to be. But anyways, so sometime in middle school, uh, they take us on a different field trip to a place in Denver called Young Ameritown, and it's a little block in a building. So inside a building, it's a, a block of a fictional neighborhood called Ameritown. And there are uh, storefronts lining the four sides of the block and a big park in the middle. And you, similar to the space camp, you fill out a form weeks beforehand what you want your job to be. Your top four preferred. And they assign you to jobs and you work. And now, was this in downtown Denver? Do you remember if you went all the way downtown for this or where it might uh, be? Probably close. I remember us getting on a bus, but really, you know. And that's what these people did full time was run a Maritown, little Maritown. <laughs> I guess. I, I you it's know, kind of a cool job. No way you made much money if you were like one of the... You know, if you were a cleaner or something, you were probably right. like a high school student. Um, but anyway, so you would work your job. You'd have like, you know, we weren't there, but for a couple hours, maybe like two or so hours. So you'd work your job and then you would get paid and you could go and spend your money at the shops where your other, your, wow. stu- your fellow students were. You working. made a wage and then you go visit, visit stores where somebody is. Who yeah. would sign up and say, I want to work at the McDonald's in Ameritown? Um, I don't know. But there were kids there, or the so there was like a restaurant, a fast yeah, food place. Yeah, and, so I'll, I'll tell you my story. So we get there, and this is to teach you, the teach kids, you know what it's like to kind of the economy, be an adult. Yeah, what yeah. Like, what what it is to actually spend money, make money. And so uh, me and my buddy Declan, we he was in fact now that I think about it, since he was at school at that time, it was probably sixth or seventh grade. I bet you it was seventh. Uh, he, good friend of mine, a real knucklehead. I'm, I, don't, I don't know if I've mentioned him here or not. It's been a while since I've talked to him. But I can't hear his name without laughing. I know. <laughs> he was a good kid. And uh, so we both decided to put in for the UPS to be mailmen. And we got it. Oh, so the USPS. USPS. Yeah. Well, we had brown. The reason I say UPS, we had brown. Um, oh, uh, so like you might have been for UPS. Yeah. And we delivered packages and stuff. Oh, there you go. 
Uh, so uh, we get the full thing. We got. I the hear shorts. those sexies. Those uniforms are like. You got no idea, man. All, all the we were getting all kinds of looks. <laughs> we got the brown shorts, the brown shirt, and we went around delivering packages to these different shops. And so it was actually really cool because I got to see behind the scenes of all the shops and kind of see what all my buddies were up to. So I'd bring them a package that we were told to bring to them. Right. And uh, and it was so much fun. And so then uh, there's a picture. I don't. I haven't seen the picture. I except for like immediately after it happened. But uh, you get a break. We get like a thirty minute break in the middle of the. Everyone has a break at different times. But our me and Declan's uh, USPS or UPS break. We go and buy ice cream cones at the little uh, cafe <laughs> with our money we just earned, and sit down on a park bench and eat an ice cream. And it was just the coolest thing. It this was is life. This, yeah, yeah. I, I work my job. I have ice cream with my friends. Yeah, life is good. I was an adult. And someone took a picture of us on that bench. I, but that picture, I have no idea where it would be. Um, but it was a really fun day. And uh, I remember they showed us a video afterwards. Because there were some you know, p- people just recording stuff. And it was the first time I bet you I was seventh grade. Because it was the first time I realized I'm very tall. I saw this video and I was like, what the <laughs> heck? I was seriously like like a foot taller than, than all your classmates. Yeah. yeah. Declan now is about my height. Um, but he wasn't at that time. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it was very fun. That's awesome. Yeah. The reason I laugh when I hear Declan's name is because you used to come up with these outlandish things. Dad, did you know? And you'd make some statement. I'd say, where did you, where'd you hear that? Mm-hmm. Declan told me <laughs> you, that was your answer for every debatable topic we discussed. Well, Declan told me. Yeah. And I just, I just can't handle it. Every time I hear his name, I think of him coming up with weird facts for you that he made up on the fly. Yeah. He either made them up or him, he himself was gullible and I trusted him too much. <laughs> Uh, last story, a little mini story is when I met Declan, he was a buddy of a buddy's. Right. So I just met him through a friend and we were, uh, I had asked him his name. We were really young when I met him, younger than when we went to school together. I probably, you know, like, uh, maybe like fourth grade or something yeah, like that. Yeah. And so he said his name like four times and I still just, I've never heard this name in my life. I have no idea what he's saying. I thought he said Duckland. <laughs> and so we go to the pool one day, me, him and our mutual friend. And I like sneak over to the sign in sheet. To see his name finally, to know what the heck this guy's name was, and uh, but he was a good friend of mine for a long time, and um, I'd visit him when I visited Colorado, so I'd still call him a friend. It's just been a long time since I talked to him. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Had great parents. Yeah, he had awesome parents. Yeah, his mom in college dated one of the people who created the Halo video games. Oh, really? One of the creative directors. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And his dad was a college football player, I think, mm-hmm. at uh, if I recall, Northwestern. And he had uh, lots of Metallica CDs, his dad. <laughs> That's all I remember about that. But that made him a cool dad. It was, Yeah, it was great. Well, let's talk about this identity conversation, John. Let right. me ask you a question. Who are you? Well, that's what made me think of it with the story is is uh, normally, like biographical information, um, you go to your job first. So it was interesting to, to the identity in Young Maritime was. I was a UPS a, guy. A UPS guy. So for me, it's... I would. I think nowadays, especially now that we're in kind of like a, um, the the younger generations have like a different attitude towards work. It seems like identity is less about work than it is what you care about or what you are good at. Your cause or uh-huh. your talent or your, or your hobby, passion, your passion. Your hobby, yeah. So I would say, um, man, that's I, I knew we're talking about identity, and I still wasn't prepared for the question, <laughs> "Who are you?" It's like the interview question. Um, uh, tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. Exactly. It's like, oh no. Yeah. I don't do. Tell me this. Where, where, uh, where in a modern culture do you think most people are finding their identity? 
it where, seems... where either where either where either culture ex- encourages you to, mm-hmm. or where just in fact people are finding it. Where where do you think they're finding their anchor a sense of self? It's tough because I feel like um, if you look around in what's loud and what's on media, it's mostly political. It would be uh, what again, like you said, your cause. What is your cause? Mm-hmm. Um, if if we're looking at social media as expression of identity, most of that. Um, is either what you are into or what you're doing or what you believe. So, so did he post the black square for, for the black lives matter movement, Th- those kinds of things. So it'd be either what you're passionately for mm-hmm. or what you might be passionately against. Right. So that, but, but when I think of, I still believe that all of the loudest parts of the internet are a very small minority of the actual, population. the actual people that you see around walking around you. So it's, it's a harder question to answer when I think about them. I think maybe the the truer root of it there comes from their parents and their family of origin. Um, it's tricky. We, uh, as a as a family unit, growing up, were kind of detached from our extended family, and we would go to Texas pretty regularly when I was really young, and then that stopped. So after that, it was kind of like, you know, I don't even know all my cousins' name uh, names on on your side. Yeah. So and a lot of that's on me, obviously, because I don't I'm not all into to Facebook as much, but. Um, so it was interesting. It felt like, um, all I had for identity was the immediate family. And I wonder how true that is for most of America. I wonder, uh, cause my wife, she gets, a, she is very close with her extended family. Very, very close. Yeah. So, and her immediate family is also much smaller than mine. So her extended family was almost the same as my immediate family. And some have gone to the other extreme. They've done the 26 and me or whatever. And oh yeah, finding out, you know, all the different links of heritage they've had. That's I've, really I've known people right who've gone over to Europe just to go find people that are they're related to and introduce themselves and, and see what their world is like. So there's also that, that end going on that searching for connection of yeah uh, people finding deep heritage in their ethnicity or in their uh, native American or whatever it would be. And that was another big one is as far as I could tell our uh, cultural heritage is about as blended up as you can get and both your side and mom's side have been in America for since, long time. since almost the beginning yeah. of it. So we, there wasn't like, I didn't have a grandma who was in like Norway, right, you know, and right, came over like it was right. very far, far removed from, from, uh, immigrants to America. So I didn't really have a, an ethnic identity either or a cultural identity other than America. Right. Which is, you know, it's hard to even tell what that is sometimes. This is all fascinating. So, uh, what I want to do is kind of walk through, um, four different models of where someone might find their identity. And you can you can imagine, and you might find yourself in one of these as, as we describe them. Um, these are typical places where people would look for, or where where identity might be um, imposed upon you from one of these sources. Yeah. And before that, could I ask, who are you? Yes, I I I'm going to show my cards here. I I think there's these four things that are the pillars of healthy Christianity. Mm-hmm. And that is first identity. I know who I am, which means where I came from, my strengths, weaknesses, flaws, all that, and whose I am, that I belong to Jesus. I've been bought at a price. Mm-hmm. Then uh, secondly is faith. I know what and why I believe. Third would be character or integrity. I know who and whose I am. I know what and why I believe, and I actually practice that where I live, work, and play. Mm-hmm. And the fourth is reproduction, that I am a spiritual father. So I think as I as I think through those, they keep me coming back to my source of identity, which is simply put 
I am a blood-bought son of the living God. Sure. Uh, um, I'm his son. And so uh, I find lots of other places where my identity is also found, but I find that the most stable life, the most uh, healthy sense of self comes from that one. Mm -hmm. I am a blood-bought, forgiven, redeemed son of the king. Yeah, for sure. So, but I'm also, uh, you know, I use the term a lot, redneck from Texas. I have people who take issue with the word redneck, mm-hmm. uh, that it kind of sounds racist. That's not the way I mean it. But country folk in Texas, uh, lots of dysfunction. I have teased that my family tree has no branches. Um, <laughs> and um, there's tons of criminal activity, sexual dysfunction, um, economic disorder, mm-hmm. um, mental health issues. I mean, our family, my family heritage has the gamut of a lot of that. So, sure. uh, yeah. So I would go to my family reunions in Texas where I would have connection with all of my, you know, cousins. And, and this is all on my mother's side. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then you hear the jokes come out when I'm an adult. You might be a redneck if you think a family reunion is a great place to pick up chicks. <laughs> and there was a lot of that kissing cousin thing going on at these family reunions wow uh just because that's the way these people were and i would go to those reunions and i would go i am not one of these people i Mm -hmm. you know i would feel like an outsider um yeah so let's talk about it you ready yeah so the first uh place for identity would be what you could call the therapeutic approach Mm -hmm. that is if you want to know who you are then you look deep inside yourself and you will either discover who you are or you will decide who you are. Mm -hmm. But identity is best if it comes from inside looking at yourself, uh, understanding who you are and what you love and what you feel and what your uh, thinking patterns are. And to embrace the inner self, to celebrate who you are, to go ahead and announce your identity and uh, then require the world to validate that identity and to embrace it. And, and so, anybody that would attack it would be viewed mm-hmm. as violent because they are trying to take away your essence of self. And this is very, um, it's a lot about control. It's a lot about taking control of your identity mm-hmm. to, for yourself. So if you um, if you felt like maybe you don't like the identity that was given to you, yeah. this could be a way to, um, to create your own. Yeah, and in a performance culture, for example, if everybody's loving athletes if you come from texas like i did where Mm -hmm. high school football is the deal and you don't play football then you might start to latch on to and take control of well i'm an artist sure i'm an author or i'm a musician uh, or i'm a math nerd you can laugh at me now but you'll be calling me boss (laughs) in a a few years you know so so there gives you a sense of being able to grab hold of this and celebrate it and anchor out of it and that's a big deal in school. I remember because I was always a bad student, I always had to think, well, I got to be good at something, right? Like, so why I couldn't just be dumb. Yeah. I can't, I couldn't have that be my identity. Well, I'm a stupid person like right. that, but that wasn't possible. So I had to think, well, it must be, I don't know that I have issues focusing. It must be that I don't find this very important. It must be something else because I didn't want, you know, I didn't want, there had to be some reason why I was bad at school. Where did you land? Uh, still, still guessing, still looking. Oh, really? Know. Yeah. Most of it. I, I wonder, I think my realization, cause when I, when I entered the workforce, um, things kind of changed and I, and I, uh, seemingly just by happenstance. 
And I wondered if it's because on a subconscious level or on a non-conscious level, when I was younger, I didn't think I actually had to do the work. Mm. There's like an understanding of this is important. Right. But at your deepest self, I didn't, I knew that if I didn't do it, I would still be okay. Yeah. And in a job for, in the workforce on my deepest level, I know that I have to do this. Yeah. So there isn't really, um, you're not letting yourself off the hook. I don't know if the word is appropriate. There's no pussyfooting around. Yeah. When you're, when you're in work, when you're at work, you have to do these things. Yeah. So I wonder if, if, um, that just kind of eliminated a lot of my procrastination. That's interesting. That's just my own personal. I, I can tell you that not one teacher of yours ever thought you had an intelligence problem. Sure. Uh, they all agreed that you were smarter than most people in the class. You understood the content more than most people in the class. You just simply would not do the work. There's a mystery uh, to, to, to yeah, myself. Yeah, you would, you would facilitate great conversations in the classroom and still fail the test. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about identity. Okay. So, so that was just my example yeah. for, for this personal one of trying now, to find your own. Um, I'm in a stretch during these, these recording times where I'm – uh, actually teaching eighth grade apologetics at ECS, our, our uh-huh. Christian school. And right now we're on uh, biblical sexuality. And when you think about your sexual identity, um, the culture encourages you to find that from within as well. So here's one of the dangers. One of the, one of the great strengths of this is that we are complicated beings. Mm-hmm. And this is both a challenge to that source of identity and also an incredible thing, reason to do this. Um, uh, psychologists agree that seventy somewhere between seventy five and eighty percent of who you are is calcified by your eighth or tenth birthday. There's debate there. Sure, and uh, that's your personality type, your sexual orientation, your temperament, your your basic way you view authority structures. Uh, so, I mean, just tons of stuff are just bam, they're done. Yeah, done. Your development's done for seventy five or eighty percent of who you are at that age, and none of us have a conscious remembrance or engagement in that formation. It just happened. Yeah, totally. So the therapeutic model helps you to go back there and understand what happened. Mm-hmm. Because the fact that you have a natural, now talking about sexuality, the fact that you have a natural desire does not make it a good one. Right, natural to you as in? As in, this is what I've always felt. Right. And this is who I am. Mm-hmm. And so um, pedophiles would say the same thing as homosexuals and heterosexuals say, this is the only desire I've ever had. Mm-hmm. And so uh, just because it's a natural desire to you doesn't mean it's a right one. So there's some landmines in the therapeutic model. But the thing that's po- positive about it and powerful about it is you go back and you discover, you dig and you investigate. And the unexamined life is not worth living, someone once said. I don't know Ooh. who that quote is. Uh, and the scriptures call us to look deeply in that, that, that the, 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 the mysteries of a man's heart are deep waters and wise is the one who who pulls them out. Hmm. So it's a very good thing to do. Um, but some people, this is how I get my identity. I decide who I am. And this is um, modern, right? This is. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, throughout Freud history, and... I think this Freud is really the, the father of this. And then a guy named Foucault, hmm. who then emphasized that you get to choose. You could create who you are. You don't sure. have to just discover it. You could actually create it. Sure. Uh, but that you're the epicenter of the universe in this regard. And uh, you decide. I am who I say I am. I'm not who you say I am. Mm-hmm. I'm who I say I am. And I, I do like the, like you said, the uh, investigation and the agency. I like yes. that you're not, that you are taking action of some kind. Yeah. You're not just going all, you know. But most of it is me. discovery. Most of it is aha, mm-hmm. aha, not decision, but um, awareness. But even, even like we talked about tools for mindfulness, 
so that you're not ignorant to your own drives and, yeah. and your own needs and wants. Yeah, and even simplicity of uh, mindfulness of when your heart starts to race. Mm. And what is it that makes me anxious in this moment? I'm feeling threatened. And yeah. yet there's no threat in the room. Why do I feel threatened? Where does that come from? So this is really a great train to be on in lots of ways. I'm a big fan. Sure. Um, so that's the therapeutic model. The second model is what you might call uh, the technocratic model. Okay. Tech- technocratic means... Um, the management or administration successfully of something. So this is about performance and success. So I am what I do. I am the guy who cured cancer. I am a great singer. I'm a powerful athlete. I am good looking. I am smart. I am a nerd. I'm a gamer. Um, But it's about performance and it's about um, accomplishment or success. Yeah. So you have mentioned to me that when you were a professional journalist, you were a little bit uh, not proud of the outfit for which you worked, but you were really proud to say, I'm a journalist. Yeah. Well, and it wasn't, uh, I was still proud of the work that we put out, but it was tricky because it was a print only newspaper. So it was not available to anybody who wanted it digitally. Right. So if you weren't nearby or had access to the printed, you couldn't see it. Yeah. So I was, and no one asked me this, which maybe I should be insulted. No one said, well, can I read what you wrote? (laughs) <laughs> but it's good they didn't because I would say, well, no, not unless you want give me your mailing address and join our subscribers list, right? Because it's not online. I couldn't tweet articles, things that a lot of a lot of other journalists do. Yeah, but it did. You know, when someone asked what I did, um, there was I, some pride there. I was. It was great to tell them. Yeah, yeah. it felt good. It was interesting. Uh, I was even as even um, interactions where my impression doesn't matter. Like with, uh, I was talking to a car insurance uh, woman uh, for a Progressive. And, uh, and she asked what I did. And I said, uh, I said, I'm a journalist. And she said, Oh, I don't think I've ever talked to one of those before. And I was, you know, kind of like the, yeah. Well, you have now. Exactly. How's it feel? And it's funny. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because, um, on a macro level, on a national level, people don't like journalists very much right now. Mm. Not many people don't trust them. Right. So, uh, but it was still, it's still an interesting job. There are movies about journalists. There are books about journalists. It was fun to be in that kind of role. Well, try being a pastor where the mm-hmm. cultural's opinion of pastors, there's a list that comes out with, with the most respected careers. Sure. And pastor is just above prostitute and just below politician. <laughs> so uh, not a highly regarded <laughs> That's career. That's brutal. Yeah. So, if, if, so the key there is that you find your identity in what you do. Mm-hmm. So I am successful. I am wealthy. I have acquired things. I make the world better. People admire me. Mm-hmm. Um, I am beautiful. People like to look at me. People like to talk to me. Um, so the real dangers here is if you actually, you know, it's one of my favorite jokes. Um, I, I was struggling with a sense of inferiority, so I went to see a counselor, and I said, I think I have an inferiority complex. So he put me through a battery of tests, and when I came back, he said, well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is you, you do not have an inferiority complex. You're just inferior. The bad news is you truly are inferior. <laughs> <laughs> and so if you, if, you, if you happen to struggle to find your place of success in the world, your identity crumbles. Mm-hmm. Or if your identity is built on your success and then you have failure, now your whole sense of self is vulnerable to destruction because your success is gone. Yeah. If you are Down syndrome, mm-hmm. do you have any identity? Is there any value to you because you can't do what other people can do? I can't measure, you know, 
So, um, it, yeah, if all of the all of identity is in reference to everyone around you, right? Mm-hmm. That's the reason it even exists. Then it has to be in the in the technocratic model it would be what do I do for those around me, or what what do I bring to this machine that we're all in? What value do I add? Yeah, yeah. And the truth about all of us is we're getting our identity from somewhere. We haven't typically thought deeply about it. But as we go through this conversation, hopefully we start finding ways. Ooh, I do kind of view my sense of self that way. Yeah. And I, you know, pastors are notorious for finding their sense of identity from the how big their church is mm-hmm. or how many people love to listen to them speak. And you're supposed to be serving the mission of Jesus, you know, uh, for the sole purpose of his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. But man, right. there's a whole lot of identity wrapped up in that. And it can toxify what you're doing. Well, and one thing we haven't touched on yet is kind of um, personality um, tests like the MBTI and then kind of this left brain, right brain or uh, a type or like like alpha type or or B type. Enneagram. Enneagram. And these kinds of things and how much of that you can really latch on to. But even for pastors, so many of of the people in that field are kind of the A type I want to go win. I want to, I want to, uh, you know, it's interesting. A lot of them are a type driven, um, uh, introverts with learned extrovert skills. Mm. Um, but some of them are people lovers and they genuinely want to be a helper. They would be great first responders. They, if they weren't pastors, they'd want to be, uh, EMTs or firemen. Sure. Uh, Because they love to serve and then they get lost in the needs and opinions of others because, me serving you is my identity. Right. And, and now and if you're you not have happy, control over me. Because right. if you're not happy, I'm miserable because I failed. For sure. So um, so that performance-based success, popularity, this external accomplishment kind of lens. Yeah. The third one is uh, not American at all, but it actually is prevalent in most of the world. Totally. And it is the communal approach. I am who I come from. Sure. I am my people. I am my tribe. I am my village. I am my family. And so in the first model, the therapeutic model, I decide who I am. In the second model, my talents and successes and performances def- decide, define who I am. Mm-hmm. In the communal approach, my community, my people define who I am. This is very common. You think of a, an, an idea that gives you a glimpse into this is like the Amish. Sure. If you are Amish, you live a certain lifestyle among a group of Amish people, isolated from the rest of the world. And that, yeah, that one's especially insular, so it's it's very dramatic. It's yes. very a uh, very explicit community. Yeah. So uh, also, people who live this communal way would be um, immigrants, where you have, say, an immigrant family moves into the country, and they're speaking their native language at home, hmm. but their children, especially their grandchildren and their great grandchildren, become more and more American. Sure. And they're distancing themselves from that communal identity. And so uh, gangs, you you behave in alignment with the community. You play by the community's rules or you're punished. Hmm. Mafia, you have the same thing. If you're a made, you know, a made man, a made man. Yeah. Uh, there's all these rules in the community and you're supposed to abide by them. The prodigal son as a parable in the New Testament is an incredible picture of this because when the son says, give me my inheritance and let me go, it's a dramatic communal insult. Sure. And in that part of the world, in those times, and as I said, in most of the world today, if you go to Africa, you go to places all over the world, communal is powerful. You you know, you represent all of us and we are all connected. And so the prodigal son runs off and he squanders the wealth, prostitutes, bad living, ruining the name of his father that was given to him. 
and damaging the reputation of his village. Because he is like an ambassador of their entire Exactly. Community. We are all connected. If you did it, we did it. Right. And so there was a there's actually a um a ritual or a, a practice that would occur if he ever came back. Sure. And that is the community would gather, they would shatter a pot to say that you've shattered our reputation and our name. Whoa. And then they would beat him and sometimes beat him to death. Wow. So this is why the prodigal son says before he comes home to himself, I will say to my father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Right. To separate, to cut himself off from that identity. I'm a servant. Mm -hmm. I don't even claim to be a part of this community. I'm just a servant here. That way it would save his own life, but yet give him food and protection. Mm -hmm. But when his father welcomes him home out in the field, he sees him and runs to him. So before Mm -hmm. he even gets to the community, the father cuts him off, wraps the robe around him, puts shoes on his feet, put a ring on his finger, and says to him, you are my son. So when he returns to the community, he's brought back as my son. So his father protects him from that ceremony sure. where he's going to take a beating. So it's a powerful, powerful thing. Yeah. And we suffer, I think, um, in America because we're so individualistic and we're so migratory around the country that we rarely live close to all of our family. And we don't have this community sense of stability. Um, when you think of that community thing, you know, if, if you're spending lots of time with grandfathers and great-grandfathers and you're sitting around having generations of people talking to each other, mm-hmm. you gain wisdom and stories and depth of connection. And it's a powerful thing that we really don't get much of. Well, and it's interesting. I mentioned this probably a hundred episodes ago, but there was a, I forget the the source of it now, but a basically a... Um, a ranking of culture and country by their by certain characteristics, and one of them was individualism. And America is is obviously at the very top of the list, mm-hmm. followed very closely by Canada and the United Kingdom. Uh, and then it, it descends down, and most, like you said, most of the world is very communal. And in our hyper individualistic culture, we even our idea of that communal thing, like the heritage thing, the right. the DNA testing, is just to inform more yourself the singular yes. being help me know myself better exactly so it's like <laughs> oh i was i'm like part irish maybe i don't know to throw something out maybe i'm lucky i don't know but you know, i you now can, love saint patty's day exactly. it's a part of who i am you get a little little tattoo of your little uh clover <laughs> because it's who you are so it's yeah. not about your culture it's what what that identity is what you can take you. from it exactly yeah um that's and, a great insight that's really true yeah okay so uh, there's one more and then what we're going to do is we're going to um do our show and tell and our commercial. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we're going to uh, build a framework that I think uh, I just had this aha moment today about hot how off the hot off the, press. hot off the press of how this can come together to help us get the best of this process for, for our own sense of real identity. Awesome. So the fourth one is a theocratic model. That is, I'm not who I think I am. I'm not what I do or how I, what I accomplish. I'm not what the community and you say I am. Mm-hmm. I am who God says I am. So this theocratic model is I get my identity from God. And sure. what is that identity? Well, in Genesis 1, I was made in the image of God. I'm an image bearer. There is profound uh, divinity wrapped inside of me because God made me like himself. Well, and I mean, how did the the New Testament authors introduce themselves in their letters? You know, like Paul was a tent maker, but he doesn't say Paul a tent maker. He says yeah. Paul an, an apostle of God. And yeah. 
and whoever's with him at the time. And yeah, where they so are. I'm a product of his grace, which mm-hmm. is that second part. Well, I, not only was I made in God's image, but I traded the great love of God for lesser loves. Mm. And I compromised. And I was born in sin. The sin of, the, of my fathers and my grandfathers and all the down the line, the sin of Adam flows through my veins. I'm contaminated and broken and depraved from the time of my birth in sin, in, in, in brokenness and sin did my parents conceive me. So I am without the ability to not be broken. Mm-hmm. Brokenness is part of my identity, but the God whose image I bear relentlessly loves me and will not rest until I am adopted back into the family and redeemed. Sure. So I am the recipient of unspeakable grace and mercy by the God who deserves to kill me in my sleep. Hmm. So uh, this helps me deal with my shame and my sin. It helps me have hope for the future. I have also an eternal destiny that my God describes for me. Totally. So this becomes the safest place um, to anchor my identity is to become almost the way God demonstrated for Jesus twice. This is my beloved son Mm -hmm. with whom I'm well pleased. At the end of the day, that's the identity that you most want. It's the, it's the most static. It's the it's the most unchanging. It's the, secure. Exactly. The technocratic one um, and the, the uh, first one, I, I forget the technical name for it. I'm sorry. The therapeutic sorry. one. The therapeutic one. Those are very dynamic. Yeah. They can change day to day even, uh, which is, is, is insecure. It's kind of, it's not stable. Yeah. So this one probably of all, all four of them is the most, um, most unchanging. It's, it's stable. It's secure. Um, it also gives me wisdom and guidance because I don't need to think about as I make decisions forward. I don't need to think about what I want. I need to think about what God calls me to. Yeah. And so when my sexual back to that conversation, when my sexuality is confused or yearning for different things, or I want to leave my wife and have an affair with another woman, uh, what informs me is my identity in Christ. And that keeps me from a multitude of pain and destruction on myself or others. Yeah. So it gives me this, uh, this, um, guiding boundary to look to so that I can be wise. Truly. If I were to be the wisest person on earth, I would be a slave of God Mm -hmm. and I would outthink all the people around me because I'm simply following the master's lead. So it's a great source of not just security, but also of destiny. So it sounds to me, this would be the end of the podcast. This would be well, this is the one, but you have, (laughs) You have had a an epiphany. I had an epiphany. So let's do quick do. You're going to uh, introduce us to a media that you love. Okay. We'll do our commercial break, and then you're going to say how there's an even further step than that fourth step. Yeah, and, and it's a way to integrate that mm. fourth step. How do I actually put that in play? Sure. And so uh, I think you'll find it helpful. But here we go. You want to do the commercial first or my? Yeah. Or oh, my? no, the, the, the media review. Okay, so we've been doing show and tell. We've pivoted that to book reviews, and now we've changed that to media or book. And so I want to recommend a, uh, I guess it's a movie, but it's actually a Broadway production mm-hmm. called Hamilton. Mm-hmm. It came to Disney Plus this summer. Many of you might have seen it. Yes, and I will say that my my daughters begged me and my wife begged me multiple times son. to watch it and my son and I just wouldn't do it. It's a musical that's too ish for me. <laughs> um, you know, I, I had, and I love history. I don't know what my hangup was, but I wouldn't do it. Well, I think largely it was probably that it was, it was, it was theater. It's theater. 
even though. But I've never been to the theater and had a bad experience. I've been blown away every time I've gone, which is only about four times. Well, and adaptions like Fences. We watched Fences. That was a oh, Broadway. Man. Uh, uh, stage and you could tell that was a stage production. And it was. It's an amazing movie. You Unbelievable. Anyway, Hamilton. So um, Bethany was in town, our, my daughter, and she said, Dad, I want you to do this with me. So yeah. we spent, I think it's three hours, isn't it? Close, if not if, if, if not three hours, very close to three hours. And so we, on a Saturday, said, we're going to do this. And you have to watch it with subtitles because yeah. they sing and rap and do stuff so fast that you'll never keep up with the words. And it's all so chock full of information oh, and history. Oh, my goodness. I sat there in awe Mm -hmm. truthfully i had to pause it multiple times and go holy cow and we would talk about what we just saw it is so brilliant actually john the i at the end of it my predominant thought was we have got to fund the arts Mm. things like this must be made yeah and uh and it was written by one guy one guy wrote the entire thing and he's the main He's Hamilton. Right. He's the, the, the star as well. Yeah. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. It is amazing. And it's uh, it's based on the book Hamilton by uh, Ron Chernow, or Alexander Hamilton's the name of the book. Um, and he wrote one on uh, Ulysses S. Grant that I've started reading. I mean, mm. they have not finished it. He's amazing. And he uh, was requested, because it's not exactly one-to-one, but that, that is the narrative of Hamilton's life that... Um, the, that the musical was the musical made was based on, on. Mm-hmm. and so the author gave him their thumbs uh, his thumbs up and he's seen the show when it was in when it was live he saw it like four or five times and loved it, he, it, big I, fan I, it. I just can't say enough about it and so i would say even if you don't do this for anything other reason except that it's a personal favor to me you should watch <laughs> this you should watch hamilton with subtitles and join the mind-blown community who have seen it i was blown away and i think one of the for, I'll speak for myself. My, I think that my assumption with theater, especially Broadway, is that it's going to be very left-leaning. Right. And so I was like, oh, a, a history of America. I didn't know how they were going to do it. And if I were to just watch this show with no cultural baggage, mm-hmm. this play loves America. This is this whole thing. It is, does. It did throw me off because yeah. you have so many black characters there. And I was like, wait was that guy actually black? Right. And so at first I was, I was struggling with my history remembrance because I didn't know that. Yeah. And it turns out that it's colorblind in terms of character choices. Sure. And um, so at first I, I had a little pause there, uh, but man, oh man, oh man, oh man, is it amazing. It's really incredible. It, just the, like you said, the uh, awe of how did someone even, how do they even this? do this? And then choreographing yeah. that. It's, it's great. It's spectacular. All right, let's do our commercial. We'll be right back. Awesome. Upstream is supported by the faithful members of the Upstream team, listeners who give monthly through Patreon. This podcast is just one part of the Jim and John ministry. They also write weekly blogs, have published their first book, and are currently at work on more. Their desire is to produce transformational content as well as offer encouragement and coaching to others. The dream is to see a movement of people who are integrating the work of Jesus into their daily lives and who are joining Him on His mission to redeem and restore all things. Check out their website at jimandjohn.com where you can learn more about the father-son duo and gain access to all they have to offer. If you would like to join the Upstream team, Consider partnering with Jim and John on patreon.com slash Jim and John. 
A link is also available on the homepage of their website. And remember, there's no H in John. Now let's join Jim and John for the home stretch of today's conversation. All right, welcome back. Uh, quick reminder, next week will be our two-year anniversary, episode 104. Oh yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be awesome. We're going to go over a bunch of questions that have been submitted that were maybe not enough for like a full episode, so we're going to run through those. So after you hear this... You don't have much time at all. You got to you got to you got to get us your questions fast. I mean, lightning fast. As soon yeah. as you hear the episode, send us your questions at info and Jim and John dot com info at Jim and John dot com uh-huh. or on Instagram in the direct message or whatever it is. Yeah, we would love to, to hear from you. We'll Here's sh- a few that you're going to hear on the uh, uh-huh. four. We're going to talk about what do we think about aliens? We're going to talk about what advice would you give your teenage self? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to talk about how we navigated uh, adolescence mm-hmm. as Christians. And um, kind of ironically with the aliens, we'll talk about uh, why modern American Christians are so obsessed with the conspiracy theories. Yes. Yeah. So these are things that have been sent to us from listeners, and we want a few more because we want to fill up uh, a good solid episode of fun questions that you asked. Yeah. So submit those questions, and we will include them in the episode. Pretty please. Okay. So let's hear your very, very hot off the press epiphany. Maybe yes. within hours. Yes. Actually, on the drive here. Yeah. Um, so you would naturally think the theocratic model is the right model. Can the rest, this is what matters. If I was taking a, this class in Northwest, this model would be the right answer. That'd if be I, the Sunday school answer. Right. I circled option D. And this is the problem with Sunday school answers. This is the problem with simplicity approaches. We are complicated beings. And I had the, the, I had this, this diagram envisioned in my head. And I want to describe it to you, and hopefully I can make this where you see it in your head, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Venn diagram, first of all, which a Venn diagram is three circles that overlap in the middle. Normally, it's two, traditionally. But but yes, it, I'm, I'm sure it can be I've multiple. never seen a two. I've always used three. Two is all I've ever seen is a, of a Venn diagram. You live in a small world. <laughs> I live in a bigger three-circle world. There you go, yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, so imagine three, sure. not two. Three circles. And uh, where they all overlap each other would be the would be the core. That's like that's where you find the best of the best. Mm-hmm. So the three circles are, in fact, the therapeutic model, the technocratic model, and the communal model. Because, for example, there is much to be learned about your identity in that therapeutic model. Mm-hmm. It turns out what you went through as a child, what your parents were like, what your family of origin was like. Uh, the pain, the the success, the beauty, the dynamics, the systems, the family systems you were part of, all of these things do, in fact, shape who you are. And it is very wise of you to go there. Mm-hmm. Your sexual urges, if you're talking about sexuality, your sexual thoughts and processes and feelings, they are they do matter. Um, and so you go there and you bring the best of that therapeutic model to the center then it overlaps with, say, the uh, technocratic model. You sure. have, in fact, been given talents and gifts and passions. There are things that matter to you. In fact, everybody, when they come to faith in Christ, the Bible says God gives them spiritual gifts. Mm-hmm. Well, one of our great statements at Evergreen is, if you want to know what God made you to do, find out what God made you to be. Mm. Because if I can understand who God made me to be, then I might have a glimpse into what God made me to do. So that technocratic model does have some valuable information for you. What are you good at? What are the aptitudes in you? Yeah. Where are those weaknesses? Why do you have these strengths and where do they point you? So you bring the best of that to the center of the circle. 
the communal is the same. If you are a white male born in a upper middle class family in a suburban city that's predominantly white, that leaves a mark. Mm-hmm. Conversely, if you're a minority child in the inner city in a very violent zone where there's lots of uh, challenges of poverty, for example, that leaves a mark. Right. You can't just. just... You can't escape mm-hmm. your communal impact, the beauty and the pain of it. And so the bring the best of that communal part of your identity. And so that's the three circles. And then it's governed by all of that happens under the authority of maybe that those three circles in the Venn diagram are circled in a big circle. I thought of that, but instead I drew an umbrella over them. Okay. And the umbrella over them is the sovereignty of God, because we do bear his image. We were made in his image. He who created us knows best how our lives ought to be lived. Mm -hmm. So we submit all of those three under the authority of God, of God's sovereignty and his word. And in the uh, through the lens of the finished work of Jesus, so that uh, the hurt, the pain, the sin, the depravity, the shame, that also gets dealt with because Jesus hung on the cross to deal with that for us. Well, and this because at first I, I don't like I like the the clean I like the clean. Well, it's option four. I get that. Right, I get a little, right. a little ten points. <laughs> um, but you realize that the power of the redemptive story of God relies on all that biographical information. Exactly. Anyways. Exactly. So like with, uh, um, that's the beauty, right? That's the stained glass where all the shards of glass have been put together into a beautiful redemptive picture. And even, um, occupation, which you think is like not the least important of all these things, but, but it's, it's maybe more frivolous. Even the occupation of, um, of Peter and his brother, mattered in in the allegory that of the story of of jesus and his his disciples that yeah. you know i'll make you fisher of men it was it was a play on it so not not necessarily that their fisherman's skills came into play there mm-hmm. um but it was definitely it was part of the story it, was, it is a very big part of the story and what you do is part of that and uh i have a question so if you if you're getting a negative sense of identity from one of these things so like if we'll go with the theocratic model uh, not the that's the productivity one. Yeah, right? the thera- no the Thera-, thera- technocratic. Technocratic, is, excuse yeah. me. I was gonna say the- yeah. Anyway, the technocratic one. And you think, um, well, I am on uh disability and uh I don't produce much. I I I accept, you know, I'm I'm helped by the state mm-hmm. and uh my maybe a family provides for me, I have caretakers. And so uh or maybe I'm not good at my job or I, I work a job that I didn't want and you feel like unproductive or, or like a like a, a loser. Right. And and would your identity then be, well, I am a blood butt son of God, um, uh, redeemed loser. Is like that that's how I could see this being kind of sticky. Yeah. Um I'm a loser, but at least I'm loved by God exactly. and, I, and I'm forgiven of my sin. Is that your identity now or No, it's not. And and here this it's a great question because what if I have uh birth defects? What if I'm a disabled adult? What mm-hmm. if I'm Down syndrome? What if I failed at every business I started and I haven't made $20 of successful income? Yeah. Um, And the answer is that um, my identity is found not in the outcomes of my life or the talents and strengths of my life, but it's actually found by the activity of God within my failures of life Hmm. or within my both talents and limitations. So as I go through a failure, if I, if I'm a loser, 
what I have the opportunity to do is to demonstrate the stability of a person who's experienced failure repeated times. Abraham Lincoln, for example, failed at almost everything he attempted in public office sure. until he became the president. And so he has the ability to demonstrate this, uh, this reserve of strength, this commitment to principles that even though he's not winning, he sees the world a certain way and knows that he's supposed to pursue that. So how you live in your failure is as much a powerful part of your story as the failure itself or as your successes. Totally. So uh, some would say, and I don't like this phrase, but they would say, you're a discord in the symphony of life. There Mm -hmm. are noises in a symphony that on their own sound uh, harsh or painful, Mm -hmm. but they are a discord in the symphony that makes the whole thing beautiful. And um, we know that um, tragedy, pain, failure, limitations are also incredible opportunities for God to show his power, glory, and grace and for beauty to arise from the ashes. Sure. And so that's where your identity comes is not, is that your story's not finished. One of one of the best books ever is uh, man's search for meaning. Mm-hmm. Victor Frankel was a psychologist who had a bunch of opinions and he was a Jew and he got put in a concentration camp. And now he had a chance to, to test all of his beliefs about mental health and he said there's one thing they can never take from you i mean they in the concentration camps they wanted to humiliate you and rip away your dignity your any sense of humanity Mm -hmm. anything that could make you an individual yes rip it away and he said what they can never take from you is your ability to choose i will choose how i respond to this Hmm. i will choose whether uh, my life has beauty or no beauty you can't take that from me i get to choose that and so the book is his story of the concentration camp and how he handled those very specific challenges. But that is that this is how we find meaning, even in disaster, even in failure. Um, you might say, well, I've been married four times and I've been abandoned by four different men. They've all run off reasons. I must be worthless. Sure. Well, no, you have an opportunity in the, in the horrible pain and abandonment and betrayal to find the power of God and to demonstrate the beauty of God in a painful scenario. Yeah. I don't, I th- know, if, I don't know if that answers your question, but no, I think it, it does. It's, it's tricky. Cause when you think of like with, um, uh, Paul and, and the thorn in the flesh or, or any number of the biblical heroes really besides like David, who's mm-hmm. just like the perfect as a specimen, a perfect human vessel. Most of the time it is, well, God uses the flawed and, uh-huh. Inadequate and, people. Well, and even David, obviously, we learn is is incredibly flawed. And but but as a as a specimen, he's like he's like an Adonis figure. He's like the king of of Israel is the whole point of it, I guess. But he's a poet. He's a musician. Exactly. He's a hunter. Uh-huh. He's a warrior. Warrior I mean, king. He's, he's got it all. Yeah, he's got it all. But with uh, with Paul, the thorn in the flesh, you know, in um uh in my weakness, uh, the strength of God and the love of God is made is made perfect. Yeah. Uh, normally that's the model. So it's tough to for me. It's tough with the um productivity model. Because specifically, um, in our weakness, the, God is glorified, right? Yeah. So, so some things like if you were to really take identity in your um, business successes, I think you hit a point to where you have to let some of those go as far as your pride. W- would you say so? Or? I would, but now you're into a stewardship issue, and it's the it's the parable of the talents. Okay. So the fact that you have this talent God has given you, um, lots of people can play golf. And Tiger Woods improved his gift of golf, but the guy's gifted. Sure. 
And so now there's a stewardship accountability issue. What do you do with this thing, this technocratic gift you have? So there are people, for example, who are phenomenal at creating wealth. They Mm -hmm. are wealth creators. And if they said, well, I'm going to crucify that and I'm going to live in poverty and not make money, um, that would be a betrayal of, of what God own, has put in them. Of their because, own gifts, yeah. Yeah, God wants them to stimulate the economy, and he wants to, him, them to use wealth creation to move the world somewhere God wants it. Mm-hmm. And so to betray that would be a, uh, a failure of stewardship. Sure. I think, I think it clicks. I don't know. I don't, I, Do you have a takeaway from this entire conversation in terms of your own sense of identity are there is there any place you would say yeah but there you haven't touched on this and I think I find my identity over there or a yeah but or any insight that you would say this is done for you I think it seems uh, this is new you know this is very new to me yeah. um, but it seems like I'm differentiating between um, historical identity and um, personality identity so if I um, you know if I'm if one of my gifts is some kind of physical athleticism right and then I'm old or, and then I have a car accident. So, uh, if part of my identity is my gifts of God and those gifts change, like we're talking about things that can and can't change, you know, what do I do there? Is it, is it just, well, I used to be gifted in this way yeah, or is maybe now, now your gift because of that experience that you had through your life, you can now help treat young athletes in their prime or athletes or coach or coach. Yeah. So, so would it just be an adaptability there or. Yeah, I think so. And I think that this is the beauty of not having your entire identity wrapped up in that talent sure, or in that accomplishment. Because then, well, now I've hit the pinnacle at 30. There's nothing else in life for me. I can never, if you're Michael Jordan, what else can Michael Jordan do (laughs) that matched him up to 40 years old? Well, nothing. I mean, it doesn't matter how much money he makes or whatever. You can't, he can't do another Jordan-esque thing Mm -hmm. like basketball was. So is his life over? No, certainly not. Um, so I think I think that's the danger of having all your identity in one of those spots versus having it in all of them. Where it all still is. He's still part of a community, and uh-huh. he is still part of a uh, of uh, other things that God has put inside of him that are inside himself. The fact that his father was murdered, just using Michael Jordan still as an example. Sure. The fact that his father was brutally murdered. Uh, that puts him in a category of population that has an opportunity to teach the rest of us something or to help one another in a unique way. So there's tons in there. And if he limited it just to his basketball skills, it would be a very shallow life, even though it was dramatic. Yeah, I think I get it. I think my takeaway would be like with Paul as an example, with he he was not a very good speaker or mm-hmm. it, it is said that yeah. he was not a very good speaker. Yeah. Uh, clearly a good writer. Yes. Um, so, but I would say maybe personal giftings of Paul, which we see before and after his Damascus Road experience, is uh, a sense of tenacity, a sense of dedication, um, ruthless work ethic, and those things persisted. Those things could, didn't change. That's true. And you see him even flinch at that weakness, uh, as he says, and I love that the scriptures let us see these guys for who they were. Sure. <laughs> as he says in Colossians, I came to you not with eloquence of speech mm-hmm. so that your confidence would not be in the words of man, but in the power of God. Right. I did it on purpose. I suck at speaking <laughs> so that you would really find your hope in the power of God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even, you know, John, um, uh, the two disciples, Peter and the one Jesus loved, ran to the I tomb. I love that. that always and the one whom up. Jesus loved got there first. He's a fast runner. Yeah, too. I was a faster runner. 
What do you have a takeaway for this episode? Well, I think that um, I think my takeaway is that your sense of self is the fundamental building block of the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. If you get this wrong, you will continue to see the world wrong and you'll make a ton of bad decisions. And so I love having a framework where you can do real business here. And uh, so my aha is ignorance is not bliss. Following your instincts is not wise. Mm-hmm. Um, that we have lots of people who are sincerely wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> sure. so uh, sincerity is not the value, but but true growth, understanding, and submission to the both the authority of God and the finished work of Jesus to color that. I just think this is really helpful. Um, and I think getting it right is a major gift to give back to yourself, to give to the people who love you and who you love, and to give to the world and to give to God. This gives you the opportunity to steward even more of yourself, to let the work of God go deeper in you and to do even more with all that God has put in you. Yeah. So I just, I'm a big fan. I think identity is a huge issue. I think so too. I think that was, uh, I think that's a great tool. You know, I'm all about these models that you can use to understand yourself better. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that'll do it for this week. Uh, again, please, please, if you have any questions, you've been like, I wish they'd talk about this. Even if it's silly, even a silly thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anything we would love to love to hear it. And next week's going to be, I, I keep using the word bonanza. It's not going to be that crazy. <laughs> It'll sound a lot like this. It's going to be fun though. We might yeah. do it outside. We might, uh, uh, record outside. We might, uh, throw a little fun in there. Who mm-hmm. knows? We might throw some, I don't know, some music or more jokes, <laughs> uh, but it's going to be fun. It'll be, it'll be mostly pure entertainment. Um, if you ask serious questions, we will give serious answers. Yeah. But it's going to be fun, and we can't say enough how grateful we are that you're even a part of this with us. We are really grateful. Awesome. Okay, we will see you guys next week.